0: Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a 100 different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Were prohibited by and T-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home Internet. Cox is the real home Internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas. Visit Cox.com Internet for details.
1: From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell and West.
2: That's Chamberlain. He's got it.
3: Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid strike.
1: To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Johnson is on there celebrating. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it!
2: Oh, man! Gets
1: it to LeBron.
2: For three for the win. Yes! LeBron James!
1: And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes! It was all over. The off. have won. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now.
2: Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty, alongside my co-host Corbin Ford. I am Garrett Bougay. First, uh, Corbin, I'd uh, like to uh, uh, thank you for for joining as always. How you doing? You know, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm excited. I'm hyped to be here. I mean, as always, this is a fun time, so uh, ready to dig into this one. We've got a uh, very special episode. This is going to be the first ever three-man pod on Duncan Dynasty, so a very special day. And and our guest, uh, I'm very excited to have this person. This is his first time on the program. He is the co-founder of the site Red Team Scouting. He's also the director of scouting for that website. They do a lot of great content, especially on the the NBA draft, so if you're looking for that fix, head over there. But his name is Alex West. Alex, thanks so much for coming on. Garrett Corbin, it is a delight to be here. We had so much fun,
1: like even in pre-show, we had so much fun talking about this series. So like, there's not enough airtime for you to introduce me because it doesn't matter because we're getting ready to talk 2,000 Western Conference Finals. Let's
2: do it. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, the the series. Uh, Picked by uh, Corbin and Alex, a series that, uh, that I have enjoyed for a long time. It was really, you know, I was born in, in 1990, so I was about 10 years old when this series happened, and, and it's one of my first real great basketball memories watching as a fan. And uh, this series, of course, uh, between the Portland Trailblazers and the Los Angeles Lakers, a couple of teams that are, uh, you know, were really fantastic that season. The Lakers won 67 games in the regular season. They were fifth in offensive rating, first in defensive rating, while the Blazers, you know, weren't too far behind. They won 59 games that season, third in offense, and fifth in defense. So, so guys, it's, it's really a matchup of, of two juggernauts of the game. Oh,
3: yeah. I, I mean, from my end of the Lakers side, you were talking about just growing up and being, you know, about 10 years old when this started. I was, what, five years off of that? And you already know my lifelong Laker love. This was sort of the series that kind of started it um, in terms of just liking the team. And, yeah, I mean, looking back on this one thing, especially from Lakers' perspective, kind of reaching the beginning of that peak for the Shaq, Kobe Lakers. You know, you have Phil Jackson come in. You have a real good, solid cast of, of role players around them getting Ron Harper, having um, for a couple of years now Rick Fox and Robert Horry and, and Derek Fisher off the bench. And you're starting to get this team that has already been I'm gonna take a thing for the last three years or so, maybe after '97, um, and lost to, if I remember correctly, the Jazz. But then, moving on, at this point, they they, they had a dominant season. Um, Shaq had the best season, I, I think, arguably of his career. Won the MVP. Kobe's ascension just keeps growing higher and higher. And this team just jumped 67 to 15, just a dominant team on the LA side. Yeah, this is, uh, this
1: team unbelievable. I mean, we're going to get into Shaquille O'Neal at a million different points in this whole conversation, but you cannot speak highly enough of this guy, just the dominance he has. And I've said this for a long time, you know, you can think Michael Jordan, you can think LeBron James, the greatest basketball players you've ever seen, and that's totally correct. That's fair. But when you're just talking about an unstoppable force, the man is like a hurricane. I mean, you see a, a tremendous body defender uh, in Arvidas Sabonis in this series. I mean, just and Shaq just gives him the business. Brian Grant has no chance against him. They bring in Jermaine O'Neill. I mean, everything they can throw at this guy. And and this is just one of those times. And we, and we know that he goes on to demolish Indiana. He goes on in a couple of years to eat Todd McCullough's lunch in the, the next series. i <laughs> like, you know, this guy, man. This is the first thing that pops off the page for me. And then on the other side, I, you know, you flip over and you talk about this Blazers team. Obviously, you got Scottie Pippen. Scottie Pippen comes over in the trade um, from Houston uh, in, in like October, like right before the season starts. He comes in, and a lot of people thought that Scottie might end up in LA. So there's a kind of an interesting dynamic with that. That Scottie might have been a Laker. He wanted to reunite with Phil. Um, the the Rockets' experiment had been a disaster. Uh, Matt Bullard, who does the radio for Houston, even talks about how he was not uh, he was not a big fan of Scottie Pippen. Um, where they weren't good teammates. He loved Charles Barkley, but he didn't like Pippen, and you know, Barkley and Pippen obviously had a fight over money, uh, who got compensated, so that all ended poorly, but it is really nice to see him kind of come in and be, he's like the, the central focus of this team, they kind of coalesce around him. I mean, obviously Sheed is their number one offensive uh, weapon, but uh, a lot comes from Scottie Pippen, and that's another guy we'll get into. But I don't want I to, I just have all this stuff that I want to make sure I get in, and I'm just uh, putting it out
2: there. So let's let's get into it so I can pepper these things in. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. The the storylines in this series are fantastic. You know, you, you already brought up the, the Scottie Pippen versus Phil Jackson. You see them throughout the series kind of chirping at each other. That was fun to see. And then, you know, just the, the idea of the Lakers being the you know, Shaq and Kobe dominated team, and the the Portland Trailblazers being more of a well-balanced, deeper basketball team. They had on the on the broadcast two deep versus two deep, and obviously the the twos spelled differently. Two for the Lakers being Kobe and Shaq, and then the two deep for Portland being you know this this group that had Bonzi Wells, uh, Stacy Ogman. Greg Anthony, Brian Grant, uh, just so many guys. Detlef Shrimp off the bench. You know they were a team wow. that had ten to ten to twelve quality basketball players that that, that Mike Dunleavy would use at uh, at any given time. Yeah, I mean it was
3: crazy looking at that one. You said it. Portland was just such a deep team, um, and just the amount of all stars on that team. I mean Steve Smith had already been one. Sky with that point seven appearances. Rishi Wallace four. Uh, Shrimp had three. Uh, Jermaine O'Dill had, had six. They were all, you know, after he left Portland, of course. But not only was this team deep and talented, but balanced. Um, Referencing the two-deep graphic and thing they were showing in game one. You know, they showed the game's high score. And going down the list, Rashid Wallace was more or less their, their leading scorer. He, he led them with 27 games as a high score. Then you had Steve Smith with 19. Um, Damon Stoudemire with 16. Scottie People with 10. And then it even those down. Arvita Sabonis had nine. Fonzie Wells had four. Dale Trent had three. Greg Anthony two. Ryan Grant too and then even Jermaine O'Neal, a young guy at the time, left at the Blazers for a whole game as high score. So you could get the offense from anywhere and they could fill it up and you see it during the series. Several different guys are coming through and, and putting their stamp in moments in in quarters and in games throughout. And it's just such a deep, well rounded team and so balanced. I, I just think, you know, you have some youth in there, you have older guys like Scotty and, and, and Sabonis and Shrimp, and um, and then you have the young guys sitting in the wing with uh, Bonzi Wells and Jermaine O'Neal, who are both 23 and under, and some other guys more in their prime. It's, this team, for me, is one that I look back and I'm like, wow. I knew they were good, and the seven-game series like showed that, but just watching in general was was a testament to how, I don't know, how, not even lightning in a pan or a flash in a pan, being how we know the rest of the Joe blitz era worked out, but how Trader Joe and Bob Wittleslett did such a great job putting this team together. Yeah, and to build on the back of that, Corbin, Steve
1: Smith comes into this game as the playoffs leading scorer. They touch on it in game two uh, a little bit. Like, that just kind of shows you the versatility, the different things you get in this game uh, from this roster. And I do want to talk a little bit before we dive into, like, the game by game. I do want to talk a little bit about the series, just kind of things that I saw uh, that are, like, overarching. So if you don't mind, uh, I mean – I'm not
2: stepping on toes here, am I? No, absolutely not. Uh, I, I actually I, I actually would like to set you up on one that I found pretty interesting, and that is the whole, uh, you know, you mentioned Shaq, obviously the MVP this season, just an absolutely dominant player. But one of the things that immediately stood out was how, uh, you know, Portland with, with Sabonis, who, you know, obviously is older. I believe he's 35 at this time. Uh, he's he's a much bigger man, which actually makes him a better matchup against Shaq, but obviously makes him a lot uh, more slow-footed and and not quite as effective of a player as he was when he was younger in Europe. But uh, you know the, his ability not only to just not get bowled over like uh, you know you've mentioned guys like Todd McCullough, but then. Sabonis's ability to step outside and keep Shaq away from the basket and, and not only have that shooting threat, but Sabonis, of course, a, a great passer from up top as well.
1: Huge, huge pivotal thing. Um, Sabonis' range. Bob Costas has this from the tip. He has it from the word go in game one. Uh, he's talking about how Sabonis being able to step outside and hit shots is going to be pivotal. And Interestingly enough, and this is kind of, I want to do just a little bit of a comparison. Uh, there are two things that, I, that stood out to me in this game. A, spacing horrible. Uh, it's just atrocious the entire time. <laughs> Three, four guys in the lane. Um, and the other thing is, it is a very tightly wrapped series. And, and you know, we'll get into the controversy and talk about all those things that happened in Game 7. But there is a, there is a there are big spikes where there are a lot of calls, and then there are Games 3, 4, and 5, they kind of let it go a little bit more, not as many whistles. But games 1, 2, and 7, there are just a ton of whistles. It's choppy. It's hard for anybody to get into a rhythm. Uh, I even looked this up. So in 2019, Toronto and Philadelphia played a seven-game series. There were 151 fouls called on Toronto. There were 148 fouls called on Philadelphia. In this series, Portland had 192 fouls. And L.A. had 195. That's six more fouls per team per game. So, I mean, you're talking about 40 fouls over the cr- course of the series and just how it kind of chops up uh, the, the gameplay. It doesn't really get into a flow. And, of course, we're in a period in this kind of late Jordan era, going into the Shaquille O'Neal dominance era, where basketball is just painfully slow. Game one is a 90-possession game. Um, it, it's very slow. But to add to that, you get this fact where, there are a ton of foul calls. There's a ton of illegal defense. Oh my God, with the illegal defense, um, and, and to me that kills a lot of the, the visual flow of the product itself, which is a you know sort of a meta look at it. But like it really was harder to watch, even though I found the basketball itself to be really entertaining.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yep. It uh, it is it is it's really interesting. You you mentioned the spacing being a big problem, and and both teams were able to to utilize the and, and use the matchups to their advantage. I think, you know, when, when you look at this series, you'd think from Portland's perspective, "Oh, you you put Pippen on Kobe. That's the obvious solution." But actually they they go against that. They put Pippen on Ron Harper and and they do a lot of the things that, you know, we've seen teams in, in, over the course of NBA history do, you know, I think the Lakers had Kobe on Rajon Rondo in some of those finals matchups in in 2008 and 2010. Where you put your best defender on a guy that isn't really much of a shooting threat, and then he can kind of muck everything up for uh, for the offense.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what happens here. I mean, and I think that's such a pressing point because there are two things that really happen early and establish the kind of the tone. Um, Scottie Pippen literally knows the triangle inside and out. He knows he knows the he knows the passing angles, and more importantly, he knows where the secondary angles are going to to kind of come open. And it is unbelievable to watch this guy move defensively in this series. How, like you said, he's guarding Harper. Uh, he he kind of sloughs off, or he's guarding, you know, two or three different people that he sends throughout the series. But you just see him sink and sink and move ahead of a pass. And all of a sudden, he's in a passing lane. And uh, the brilliance of Scottie Pippen, which is so often, now is not a great time to say this on the back of the last dance, but, like, so often overlooked the Defensive brilliance of Scottie Pippen is on full display in this series, Uh, and and I think he just does an unbelievable job being disruptive to this Lakers triangle, uh, particularly on entry passes. Uh, That's a really, really huge thing that just from the word go, you go, oh man, I did not
0: appreciate Scottie Pippen enough in his time. And now looking back, I mean, we did the last dance, and obviously we all appreciated Scottie uh, through the through the
1: course of the documentary, but watching this series, I just had this new appreciation for what he could do
3: as kind of an alpha dog on this team. I I was going to say, piggybacking off of that, not only, you're right, because his defensive disruption was something, again, right off the last dance, I was a lot more in tune to, and just seeing how he's able to kind of tag down, pick up the big man, go up, stick on the perimeter, be like this ultra-free safety of sorts for that trouble defense, and then on the offensive end, you're right, an alpha dog of sorts for a team that you know, they needed that one central guy. They had a lot of vets on this team. Um, you know, in, in terms of the makeup, but you had one guy who had the championship experience, was only three years removed or two years removed from his last ring, knew what it took, and the energy, intention was hitting big shots. You saw it in game one. Um, through certain points, big threes or statement dunks and things of that sort that emotionally were keeping the Blazers in check. This team was, oh, uh, it was it was a pulsating like perfect storm of just. Eels and personalities are ready to blow. And so you get someone there who could steady that and manage that and was still very effective even at the age of, what,
1: 30, 34, 35? He's he's, he's old. But the thing about that, Corbin, though, that I noticed was watching the Jazz series uh, before this and
3: then coming into the series, Scotty's way healthier in this series. Like, he
1: just moves a lot
3: better. True. True. That back isn't as much of an issue as we saw in the in the late nineties. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like he, it, it's a, it, This to me looks like a ninety six Scottie Pippen versus a ninety eight Scotty Pippen. Just the way he moves, the fluidity, uh, the way he can be disrupted. Oh my God! I mean, you cannot talk enough about what this guy does. It's so unfortunate. I mean. Well, I, 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 I try not to let my Laker buy a shot through. We have done sort of <laughs> many times, but it is very unfortunate to me that we never got to see this team win because if they get through this series, if they win game seven, there's an Indiana team waiting that's just undermanned, under undergunned. Um, this team, like we said, has so
3: many weapons, and it would have been nice to see Scotty get that seventh ring as his own guy. No, this is probably a clunky transition, but I have a hot take saying that if the Blazers, and we're going to get this very soon, but game one, I feel like they had a moment there, and, and sure. I, again, we can kind of go into it there when we get to a certain sheet Wallace, but just in general, with how he was playing and everything that went down there, you're right, like, they had chances, and of course, we're going to delve into them, but that to me was one that I thought of as like, wow, that was a chance right there, and like I said, we'll get down to that, but go on, Alex, I'm sorry.
1: Uh, that that was all. I mean, I do want to get into. Let's go ahead and just get into Game One because, uh, the, like you said, there are there are little moments in this this early matchup, this feeling out, that are just so interesting to me, uh, and I
2: definitely want to touch on them. Yeah, the uh, you know speaking to some more interesting matchups. Of course, we, we already referenced the the fact that that Portland was putting Pippen on the likes of Ron Harper. Uh, that, that also led to a little bit of an interesting cross-match with, with Damon Stoudemire and Kobe. And it felt like, you know, the Blazers' strategy a little bit, putting, putting their smallest guy on Bryant, was a little bit to, to maybe, and, and I think Bob Costas mentioned this, to maybe convince Kobe to, to take over the offense and shoot a little more and, and, and keep the ball out of Shaq's hands. But I think it also was effective just in terms of Stoudemire's quickness uh, was was able to keep Kobe from from driving as much and, and getting to the hoop and obviously that would open up offensive rebounds for uh, for the Lakers bigs but then on the other end it was interesting because you know Damon Stodemeyer wasn't really able to get going offensively because Kobe Bryant's excellent perimeter defense now, they don't- find the lineup that
1: works until about game four or five and Stoudemire has these moments where he's very effective particularly at game six I think he's got that 17 and seven game but like he's one of to me when you look at a guy like David Stoudemire he's what I would consider like a like a third down running back kind of that counter punch option as opposed to your lead option they put him out there um and he does a fantastic job just being sort of a pest. But there are times when, particularly playing against 6'6", Ron Harper, 6'7", Kobe Bryant, where he's a little bit overmatched. And later in the series, you see them shift to this lineup that's Sabonis and Wallace and Pippen and Shrimp and Smith. That is this bigger lineup where everybody's six 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 seven, 6'7". Um, and it allows them defensively to do a lot more, whereas you lose kind of some of that quick hitting, getting out, pushing, making uh, making transition buckets that the that the blazers so desperately need in this series so there's a really interesting trade-off in what Damon Stoudemire brings to the table versus what he takes off from the table
2: yeah absolutely it seemed like you know when he actually got the team out and running and, and he he had a couple of moments where he would just pull up and, and knock down some jumpers in transition he, Stoudemire, a, a pretty decent shooter. Uh, but but yeah, for for the most part, I didn't see enough of him of him pushing the tempo and and really you know upping the pace. It, it, a lot of times, I felt it was it was Pippen that was was getting the team into their offense early, and and he had moments where he looked good with that. But uh, yeah, Stoudemire Sodemeyer struggled. Uh, but you know those big lineups you referenced, I think part of why that a lot those lineups were so effective for Portland. As you look at the Lakers and, and their point guard situations, they're playing the likes of Ron Harper, Brian Shaw, Derek Fisher. None of these guys are, are guys that are going to break you down off the dribble or or even really press you full court that much. So, you know, the, the Blazers were able to go big and in my mind weren't really punished for it.
1: Yeah, there, there's a lot of that. Uh, there's so many interesting spacing questions about this because this is this triangle offense this particular Lakers iteration um, Shaw comes off the bench has a you know has a uh, couple of really fantastic shooting games and then you, but you don't really get a ton from the bench I mean you get, Glenn Rice gives you what he gives you in the starting lineup they talk about how they want more from him all the time <laughs> but then when you look down the bench you got guys that play I mean AC green is AC greens on his last leg three years ago um, Rick Fox has just a terrible series I mean, mentally, it's just like he's not there, and they talk about it in one of the games how he just had his son, you know, his first child had just been born, and maybe there was some late nights, and, and just that new dad brain that was going on there, uh, but he is terrible. John Salley comes in for like six minutes, and I think he's like negative a billion. So, <laughs> the Lakers are working with this really short rotation, but to say that, you look at what it is. Now, this is where... I think a lot of people are going to say something that I'm going to contest, and I, I understand both sides of this. A lot of people would say if you played this series in 2020, the Portland Trailblazers would win because they have the most modern lineup, which is which is good, and, and and we can certainly talk about that point. But I will say Shaquille O'Neal averaged 3.8 assists this season, and his passing stands out as exceptional to me. He the way he reads those double teams, the way he finds cutters, he throws a little touch pass. Um, Putting Shaquille O'Neal alongside Rick Fox if he's hitting shots. Robert Ori, who doesn't hit shots well but hits some big shots. Kobe Bryant who can make use of this space. Derek Fisher who becomes a much better spacer uh, later in his career. You, if you get all these guys together in that 2020 idea of one big man and then four out spacing around him. I mean I think this team is is absolutely devastating in a mon- modern concept. Because you do already have Robert O'Reilly who is this modern four playing 20 years ago who can space the floor, who has hit, even to this point, has hit 10, 12 big shots, will go on to hit another 10, 12 before he retires. Uh, You have these guys, this personnel, in that five. Now, everything outside of that is... There are suspect lineups where, you know, sometimes it doesn't look like Ron Harper can score, and sometimes Brian Shaw gets a little bit overpowered in those bigger lineups. But that, you know, that seven has a very modern context to it that I think, if you look at it through that lens, lines up pretty well to the way we play basketball just because
3: Shaquille O'Neal, great passer, an absolute whirlwind, impossible to guard one on one. Oh, yeah, and we had talked, um, Garen, I, we broke it down, the 95 series just about. Um, the five out or the one in, one in four out style that the Rockets did in the '95 Conference Finals against the Spurs, and this is like you said, more of an evolution. That not only with the fine pattern Shaq kind of underrated there, but I feel like Kobe was an evolution in that shooting guard position because Clyde Drexler was a menace in that series. Able to create his own shots, everything. But obviously you have a younger player in Kobe, but someone who is better just at creating that. I will say arguably even at that time compared to Clyde Drexler, you know, in '95. That could also take pressure off. And this is a funny thing. I was looking back on this game one watching and going, wow. And I remembered even as it happened, Shaq was obviously the dominant force in this one. But that Kobe basically just took nine shots. Four and nine. Didn't feel like he did in later years where he would like make a show of passing the ball like the see look what happens, I don't shoot fifty shots a game. It just kinda seemed like like kind of the flow of the offense really. If anything, he was a little less, I want to say less aggressive, but it didn't seem like he was going out of his way to be that. But you had someone with Bryant with the capability of going off and creating a shot and carrying the offense for stretches. We would see later in the NBA Finals when Shaq was in foul trouble later on with his mid-range jumpers just again and again and again. But in this game one, I mean, he kind of slotted in comfortably behind Shaq with 25 shot attempts and Harper with 10. Um, he probably could have taken like four and been a little more effective, but just in terms of shooting. And that's why I like to pick it up from what you're saying in terms of, yeah, modern-wise, You would because you have a dominant big who's a decent pass. You have great shooters all around. Um, even if they're not as dynamic ball handlers or offensive creators. You have one of the all-time greats at the shooting composition with Bryant. So you take that, rotate that in and out. Yeah, I think that, that works really well. Particularly with the way Shaw shot. I mean, he 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 shoots lights out. He has two
1: really big games in the series. But like, just having that third that you know that third guard you can kind of rotate through with Fisher with Bryant. I mean, they use Ron Harper a lot. Ron Harper does a fantastic job doing what he does. But when you like switch to that modern context, it's really hard to see Ron Harper playing with another non spacer in Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that there's a really good argument that this is one of the most dominant teams of all time. The next year they're going to be better. They're going to go to the fifteen and one. Uh, but I really think that there is kind of an eye on the future with this team, even though the triangle is not what we would consider the most modern. The pace is glacial. The spacing is abysmal. The bones of a pretty modern team, and we even see the success of that spacing with uh, Ori in game seven, hits this above the break three um, where he's playing the power forward position and he pulls his man all the way out to the top. And then all of a sudden you look around and Shaquille O'Neal's got eight feet with a single defender, like just – you see the bones of modernness in this game, even with this team that, uh, through all the pieces of the '90s, '2000s basketball, you can still see those
2: glimpses of like, oh, okay, I see where we're going from here. Absolutely, you know the the Lakers uh, for they they have certain lineups that that really work well in Game One. They they shot the heck out of the ball from three and really, you know, kind of won the game in the in the first half and. Uh, you know, you've got the likes of, of Ori knocking down shots. You mentioned Brian Shaw knocking down shots. Glenn Rice was a, was a really good three point shooter. Uh, but, but what I found interesting was, yeah, the, the starting lineup that, that Phil Jackson chose with Ron Harper at the point and also with A.C. Green out there who, you know, could knock down a mid range shot but uh, didn't have that three point range. That's when, you know, you, you saw the Lakers struggle a little bit to, to get Kobe and Shaq open looks. And, and the Blazers were so good with, uh, I noticed, Pippen, and and also Rasheed Wallace were great at, at double-teaming and then being able to rotate and and get around to all of the shooters and, and contest. But you speak of these matchups, and on the other end, Portland had this great advantage with Rasheed Wallace, where the Lakers, it didn't feel like they had a lot to, to slow him down. Well,
1: they had nothing to slow him down, and... and, and... I watched every game of the series and I watched them in sequence, which is really funny. Like, without the days in between, without the narrative in between, you can see this through line where Rashid Wallace is just completely unguardable. AC Green is, he does his best. AC Green, great player, does his best guarding him, but. Pacers make a point every single game that their first possession they're going to go to Sheed who's going to be down on this left block he's going to open to the inside and he's going to score and almost every single time I think he misses one shot of the seven he takes the first shot in almost every possession of the and you just see there's this systematic approach to this is what we're going to do. We're going to bury A.C. Green, and you're not going to be able to play him. And the Lakers eventually do shift away from that, and you see Ori closing out games far, far more often, which is this interesting like kind of thing that Phil Jackson, this mind game thing, the Zen master, I'm not quite sure what it's about. To me, I watch this series, and this is not coming in on the back of an 82-game season, so I don't have the full perspective. But to me, watching this game, it's just so readily apparent that Robert Ory is a starting-level player, an above-average starting-level player, and A.C. Green is just not able to provide the things anymore that he needs to, particularly against Sheep. But the Pacers do a great job of dictating. Um, and, and as we get into this, like there's something else I want to talk about and like, flip the script a little bit and talk about Portland because Portland has a really distinct advantage here. And Bob Costas identifies it immediately. When you place Sabonis and Wallace together, you have a wide, wide open space, particularly with Sabonis above the break, because he's such a great big-to-big passer. And that's something he does a couple of times in this series, where he even surprises Sheed once, throwing this pass, this kind of, this just over-the-top little drop pass into Sheed, and Sheed does not see it coming. But the space that these two guys provide, now this is where we talk about, this is where and I accept this point. You look at this Portland team. You go, hey, they're really modern. This is really modernly like a modern constructed team. With you got Sabonis, who has he doesn't quite have three point range in this series. You think his legs are just bothering him just a little bit. I mean, he's this is a guy who's ruptured both Achilles, who's had procedures on knees. Uh, he, when you compared to what you saw in the 88 Olympics for Soviet Union, when you see him playing for Lithuania, when you see him playing for Real Madrid. And if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't taken the time to just go through the Arvidas Sabonis film, you should do that. He is fantastic. He is a delight, one of the all-time greats. But he's not that player anymore. But what he does provide is this incredibly high IQ, Brand of basketball where he knows what he does. He knows that his his value offensively is in this space, and he's got this kind of th- sub three point range, which in a modern game would he would be one step further back. I mean, he, I bet he takes ten shots within a foot of the of the three point line, yeah. which which we know is the bad shot here. But there, are you know, there are just so many flashes with this Portland team where it's like, okay. Now they're kind of figuring out how to space it, how to do it. And that just leads itself to this question that I think I have to pose here at the top. It's like, why don't you just go with, in the moments when you're not playing Sabonis at the center, why not just go with Rashid and run this pick-and-roll game that we see particularly in game five or six? I can't remember. Steve Smith and Arvita Sabonis have a tremendous pick-and-roll game going for a little bit there. I don't understand why. You just say, okay, Shaq's going to beat us. We're going to front him. We're going to put him in brackets like we've done. He's going to beat us. But let's put Sheet on him so that he has to guard Sheet. And this is something that you never really see through all of the Lakers' runs is the way to beat Shaquille O'Neal is to work his butt off on the defensive end. Make him move. Make him move his feet. Make him contain. And nobody really does that because it's just not in the zeitgeist. It's just not something that people are thinking of. But as we watch it 20 years later that's the thing that just came up to me is like okay you got sabonis great pick and pop player shows that off that tremendous range is a fantastic passer can really dissect the offense and then you've got Rasheed wallace who is lights out from three i think he shoots like 60% for the series from three and that pick and pop game why don't you just try and make Shaq defend and so that's the that's the spin where i say you know people will say well this is this portland team would win in 2020 there's a very good point to that and, and unfortunately Mike Dunleavy doesn't quite find that out uh,
2: in time to, to apply that in this series. Yeah, to me the the big question mark about, you know, putting putting Rashid at the five is the idea of, okay, well, if he's guarding Shaq, you know, the, the Blazers so so heavily rely on Wallace on the offensive end. That you don't want Wallace getting into foul trouble defending Shaq, and and that was one thing that was was so underrated about Shaq's dominance is just how often he uh, you know fouled the opposing centers out and even fouled out their backups. Uh, so you know you see it at several times over the course of this series where Sabonis gets in foul trouble. Then uh, you know even in Game Seven, which we'll get to later, but you know you see Sabonis and Grant both get multiple fouls in the first quarter just trying to deal with him. So, so, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a give or take there, uh, obviously, and, 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 and something that, that Levy I just think, was, was unwilling to experiment with for, for whatever reason. And he, he also wasn't willing to experiment much with Brian Grant at the four, even though at times I thought, you know, those super big lineups uh, were effective. He mostly stuck with Grant as the, the backup center. And you know they have Joe Klein not dressed
1: out in this series. Joe Klein, big body, seven-footer, good 260 on his frame. You see him sitting behind the bench a lot. And there was a lot of question going into they, – they thought they needed the guard play. They thought they needed Greg Anthony, who was apparently at the bottom of the, of the roster. Um, and that was a discussion that had – I mean, even though Gary Grant, I think, doesn't play a single minute um, – uh, it was like, do we need Greg Anthony, or do we need Joe Klein? And there was a good argument, and I think Costas makes it maybe Kevin Harlan again two or three, I can't remember. One of the play-by-play guys says, you know, hey, why, why is Joe Klein sitting over there not dressed when he could be a big body to provide these extra fouls? And like, They do have to dust off Jermaine O'Neal, whose uh, Portland Trailblazer tenure is, is less than storied. Um, and, and I think, and particularly in this game one, I think Jermaine O'Neal actually does a pretty decent job defending Shaq, and... and Applies himself there for a few minutes in the fourth quarter, but you, you do wonder like, you know, right, defending Shaq is, is the ultimate. I mean, like I said, I think he's the most unstoppable force in, that I've seen. I didn't see Will, so I don't, you know, can't go back that far. But like, in terms of just the, the way he overwhelms people, you think, you know, maybe they did need Joe Clyde in this series. So there's a lot of little things that Dunleavy does that, you know, obviously it's easy to armchair to a quarterback 20 years later. Uh, with the knowledge of the, the intervening 20 years, but there are a few things here and there that I really do call into question. It's like, well, what have you done this? Because you only need to be
3: 1%, 2%, 3% better to win this series than what you are. I mean, and yeah, I was going to say, what's funny, you mentioned Jermaine O'Neal, the bigs, Dunleavy's, um reluctance to kind of switch it up, to focus more on the backcourt, on the swingman, to kind of keep that going. I thought it was interesting that, you're right, I thought, especially game one, when I noticed is that I thought you made Neal no did okay on, you know, his namesake. Like, he had a nice block on him. He kind of stood up as bad as he well. was. You could have definitely felt like he was not stronger, but just better at, like, sticking up Shaq than Brian Grant was. I felt so bad for the man all series. But, um, in general, and then right after this, it's like, okay, Portland, they switch up on this whole deal about O'Neal, who, you know, was unhappy, you know, having such a team and not having, um, a lot of play time and you did mention Joe Klein you know 38 year old backup center but the Trailblazers definitely could have used the method that the Kings did where they just went you know in later years they used all their big men like just fuck right. in the stop him. Pollard just because they're nowhere exactly exactly like yeah you're not going to stop me being can him but guess what we can try to get some guys in swap bodies you know utilize our files correctly do whatever we can to stop him that means so everyone we have at him and Portland didn't want to do that and then um, I don't want to jump too far ahead while well, it's the next season but they, over- they overcompensate on that end. By trading Jermaine O'Neal, you know, who was unhappy, for Dale Davis, who did just as useless a job sticking Shaq in later playoff series as anyone they were already using. And then they shipped off Joe Klein with Jermaine O'Neal. So it was That's just it. interesting. And they also send out
1: Brian Grant the next year. They bring in Sean Kemp, who has to go to cocaine rehab. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh they just went so far in the other direction looking for guys to stop Shaq that uh, it is really difficult it's such a difficult calculus. I mean, look, you know, we, we don't. We're sitting here, we're, we're picking through the, the scabs, the 20 year old scabs, but, like, that's a really hard call to make in the moment. It's like, how do we defend the most undefendable player in the league since Jordan retired? What do we do to stop this guy? And obviously, they don't know quite what they're dealing with yet on the back of the next three championships, but it, it's very difficult to see a path. Now, Interestingly, and this is something I took away from it, I, I really don't like that they back him the whole time. They defend Shaquille O'Neal from behind the entire series. And Shaq's so big, so physical, so broad across the shoulders, that he can use his his girth. And Shaq probably hits people with elbows fifty times in this series, but he gets brutalized too. He's the and Walton says this in game seven that he's the hardest player to referee since Moses Malone and Dennis Rodman, which was just so perfectly Walton. But uh, he's an incredibly hard player to referee, but I don't like that they just back him the entire time. Every single center that you see come into guard Shaquille O'Neal, be it Brian Grant, who is
0: 6'8 and giving up you know, 60, 70 pounds easily on him, be it
1: Sabonis, who, who can match him size for size, but you see Shaq get away with these spin moves. I mean, he, he, as soon as he feels Sabonis leaning the wrong way, it, Shaq is gone, he gets that spin moving and, and the ball's just up on the on the backboard before you can blink an eye and, and the same thing happens with Jermaine O'Neal it's like, where is that half front, where is, uh, where are we what are we doing, because they, they thought that the, the conceptual idea was we'll, we'll bracket him, we'll, we'll sink Scotty we'll sink uh, Steve Smith, we'll sink Sheed, whoever it is who's on that like two pass away guy, sinks down into the lane and we'll be able to be able to disrupt him, and they do do a good job, particularly against five and six, of being disruptive and not letting Shaquille uh, O'Neal get the touches, but when he gets the touches with these backs, I mean, there's just no way to guard this guy, and, and him position the way he wants in the middle of the lane, I mean, how many times, guys, did you see him just flash across the lane, throw those big arms up in the air, and the guy behind him is completely shadowed behind him, uh, and to me, like, that was the big thing, like, the big takeaway is, like, wait, wait, we're just gonna play behind in this
3: series. No, exactly. I do have to say one thing about that. I was I was commenting, I was thinking about that kind of useless defensive strategy they used. Where I thought it was interesting, particularly in like the third quarter when the Lakers kinda of got a run back. They were kinda of getting it was even through the first quarter, and then the second quarter the Lakers had a huge 37-point uh, second quarter to kinda of start blowing the doors off. And then Portland kinda of creeped back and what I guess their answer was was okay, defensively, we're gonna get to see that we don't have to stick the guy. Let's go hack a shack. What was the mindset? I mean, look, I mean, I forgot. Having, you know, shot not the league for a couple of years, um, you know, we saw with um, Dwight Howard, and uh, who was just performing just after him, um, his name. I and mean, like, then they did to Roy Hibbert in the
1: 2013 playoffs. Roy I mean, Hibbert. You've seen this throughout the, the – you, you DeAndre, saw Ben Wallace. DeAndre, DeAndre Jordan. Jordan. You saw Ben Wallace go through it in the late 2000s where, you know, you got these guys who just can't shoot free throws, and, and they're, they're continually getting hacked. and
3: It was <laughs> – as you said, completely disruptive to the viewing experience. Yes, but it, it and that's it was. And there and um one thing I like done it kept showing Dunleavy be just face fixed like we're just gonna keep doing this. And it was disruptive, it, it stretched the game out after twenty minutes. But it almost felt and I guess this is where the Hack Shaq conundrum back then, was that it was working. As long as the players were then scoring on the other end. You know? Because then, okay, Shaq had a moment, I think he missed what, six, seven straight free throws at one point, yeah, and they so. definitely rebounded with, like, six straight makes, but I felt like, you know, once that started happening, it was, okay, that's what we're gonna have to unveil, that's where we're gonna have to go to, and you could see um Costas um talking and say, hey, this is this definitely gonna be a storyline, this could be, dip. like, it felt like that was the moment when, yeah, they were using it, but they weren't using it with such insistence and such um severity as they were, came that third quarter to the fourth, where they just seemed to line so many times, as we saw, he attempted how many free throws, uh, he had 44 points, 41 points, he attempted 27 free throws, like, they were just piling it on and And thank God, just to build on that, thank God he hits free
1: throws later in the series. Because it, it would have just been atrocious to watch. They try to go through this in a couple other games. And Shaq, I think at one point, hits like seven in a row. He knocks down six out of seven. Thank God. That the math on this, and you know the analytics guys will tell you this worked, this idea worked. The, mat, the break-even point's about 55%. And Shaq's about a 51% career shooter, and just he goes on one of these tears where he shoots
3: well. Uh, and for the viewer, all I can say
2: is just thank God that happened. Yeah, the Lakers. Uh, Corbin mentioned it in that second quarter. Uh, put up a really productive offensive quarter. They gone an 18 to two spurt, and it felt like to me, you know, the Blazers just especially in that Game 1, really didn't take anything away from from Los Angeles. You know, they, they gave Kobe a matchup where he could shoot over the top of Stoudemire. Uh, Alex, you mentioned it. They played behind Shaq, and, uh, you know, he was able to to put up 41. They also gave up a ton of wide-open threes, which the Lakers knocked down. Lakers ended up winning Game 1, 109-94. But, uh, you know, moving on to Game 2, the you hold know... You hold on, hold on. You can't, you can't the thing that comes out of Game
1: One that we carry with us through the series, in addition to the Lakers supporting cast shooting, but the thing that you can't bury the lead on Game One is she getting ejected for staring. This is something we have to talk about because it is so quintessentially 2000s NBA. Because it is the culmination of Rashid Wallace, who has been refed a certain way for a long time and feels like he's targeted, and then and then you're also looking at you know several veteran officials with Bob Delaney, Ron Garrett, and Mike Mathis, who and particularly Mathis, just does not like the way that she looks at him. (laughs) And interestingly interestingly enough, this is a blessing in disguise for, for Portland because she gets ejected for staring, and... I'm, I'm going to give my unpopular take. I actually agree with she being ejected because she was trying to do it and they talked to the ref later. You hear the, the refs are mic'd up, which is amazing. I loved that. That's something we need to bring back is having the refs mic'd up and getting to hear them converse with the players because it's so good. But you actually hear him talking to the referee, talking to Mike Dunleavy later and, and Steve Smith, and he says, hey, he was trying to intimidate me. He was trying to intimidate me, and I told him to stop. I told him to stop. And so – I actually agree with the ejection. I didn't agree with the first tech that he got. I thought that was really bad. The one where they're down on the uh, the, the right end of the court and he's sitting out. I thought that was pretty no matter what he says, just okay, whatever. But with the, with the ejection, I actually thought there was something to that. But the most important thing that comes out of this is she maintains his composure for almost the entire rest of the series. He only picks up one more technical foul through the course of this series, and it's almost like a, an awakening moment for him, saying like, "Hey, I can hurt my team with my behavior." Now, I mean, he goes on to lead the universe sometimes, <laughs> right? but there is almost, almost a moment here in this in this seven-game series where Rashid Wallace is. In the game, he is self-contained. He's not quite as emotive when it comes to these calls. Now, he's still emotive because he's Sheed, and that's what he does. But you almost see that blessing in disguise now. It's at the expense of Game 1, which maybe ultimately, as you alluded to, Corbin, cost them the series. Um, But I do think there was something that comes
2: out of that that's really important. Absolutely. And, you know, it it could be a combination of, yeah, Sheed kind of uh, maintaining his composure also perhaps the backlash from the ejection maybe was in the ref's head and they didn't want to, to overreact in in future times there there were a few there were a few moments where i was a little concerned throughout this series for uh, for Rashid potentially getting tossed but uh, the lakers win that uh, win that game 1 109 94 let's move on to to game 2 and uh, a few notes that i had about this game Uh, One that, you know, immediately off the bat, it seemed like the Blazers were were trying to to get Sabonis the ball a little bit and get him a little bit more involved with his passing out of the post. Uh, The Blazers attempted 25 free throws in that first half. And then also, you know, the defensive strategy, I didn't feel like changed much from Portland, but they just executed it better. You know, they still had Stoudemire on Kobe, they still played behind Shaq, but... I think the double teams were a little bit more quick, and the rotations out of it and the shot contests were a little bit stronger in that game, too. And it comes down to this, Garrett,
1: 6-for-23. Uh, when you, you look back at the first game, you, that Lakers supporting cast, we talk about how well they shot, knocking down threes, and, and um, you know looking at that, they go 9-for-19. Nine okay, so you flip over to game two, and like you said, the defensive strategy stays the same. You're putting on brackets, you're letting Scotty play free safety. And to compound that, The Lakers missed 17 three-pointers. And so I think, to me, that's like the difference in this series. I mean, the difference in this game of the series is that you don't have that electric shooting from Shaw, from Rice, from Ori, from Fisher, all these guys uh, guys that knock down three-pointers in different games. It's just not there in this game. And you see Portland kind of roll this one. There's a stretch where they just really go over them in the third quarter. And to me, it's just like, well... Okay, that's, a, that's one of those games where the shots aren't falling. And, and to me, like they don't really switch anything up. They just happen to
3: find one of those off days for the Lakers shooters. Oh, yeah. There was another game where you had a, a conservative um, Kobe Bryant as well. Um, only 12 points on two and nine shooting. Definitely wasn't connecting from the field too much to go along with. Like you said, those missed threes from everyone, Rice right? didn't hit one. Um, you know, Robert Orient was on fire in that second quarter of game one. He didn't hit one uh, shot two for six, Fox two for four. Harper was inconsistent all series. He would shoot 20% from three the rest of the way. So he wasn't hitting in your right. Like, that was a big difference in the sense that uh, a lot of that, that we talked about before with the four-out one, it is having the four-out being able to kind of convert on the aspects at a decent clip. And when that started happening, you know, the offense sputters, and Portland rolled on to an easy victory in game, Two. Portland does one thing in early on in Game One, and they decide
1: they're going to set a tone, and it starts with Scottie Pippen. They attack the rim. They are, are they are voracious. You touched on Garrett when you say 25 free throws in the first half. They are relentless in their attacking of the rim this game. You see Pippen get to the rim and throw down a nice dunk. You see Damon Stoudemire get to the rim. You see uh, you know just guys consistently creating opportunities by getting there, putting putting the ball off the glass, doing a lot of things. Um, and I think that's another huge part of this game It's like, well, okay, we're just going to attack you. And and this is the, kind of the game where we see a lot less AC green from here on out. I mean, we don't see no no AC green, which is like kind of what I want. But we do see a lot less of him uh, because he just kind of gets hammered. They just keep going to Sheet, and they just keep feeding him and keep feeding him. And, and, and Sheet has, you know, one of those halves where it's like, He's he just, just demolishes them in the second half and I, I think as you look through the course of the series there are quarters that really stand out the third quarter of the second game is that for the Portland Trailblazers this is kind of the, the stamp on their resume because they can look back to this in the later games of the series and say, okay, there's a roadmap here. this is not a, a, an unbreakable team. there's a roadmap to succeed and The big parts of it are put rim pressure, make sure we can defend those closeouts, even if we're switching on them. We're we're putting hands in shooters' faces. We're not letting anybody beat us from around the outside because Shaquille O'Neal is going to get 30, and 20, as he does later on, the key is limiting the second chance opportunities, is limiting the amount of three-pointers that you can put on, and then on the other side, applying that pressure to the rim. And I think that's the things that they take away from this. And then the last thing that I do want to touch on is they do get Sabonis more involved. He does not have a great game here. He kind of comes around in game three. Uh, But they get him more involved. They let him distribute. They let him take some of those outside shots. And I think he was a virtual non-factor in Game 1. And we see late in Game 2, you know, he starts to come back and, and really be something of a contributor, even though, I mean, like you said, he's five years past his prime and, and just cannot move. I mean, the guy was a guard, essentially, when he played in Europe. And when you see him here, he's a, he's a statue, but getting him involved and looping him in and letting him run little offensive Schemes and letting she get these pen downs while Shaq is guarding at 20 and 23 feet is so pivotal to the to the 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 Trailblazers, particularly in their wins in games five and six. You see
2: the roadmap right here. Yeah, that, that third quarter, you, you see everything that, that you mentioned it, Alex. That you see everything that makes this Portland Trailblazers team great. You see the inside-outside brilliance of, of Rasheed Wallace as a scorer. You see Steve Smith and, and even his inside-outside offensive game. He had a really nice post-up game where he could go to a fadeaway, shoot over the top. And he also, you know, was a decent guy at, uh, you know, running pick and rolls and and shooting off the dribble. Wallace and Smith both had double digits in that third quarter. And then, of course, Pippen being just that all-around player, the rebounder, getting steals, taking charges, and, and just doing a little bit of everything. And... And the Blazers won that third quarter, 28 to 8, and and eventually win the game, 106-77. But but certainly, yes, a, a a major major win for for the Blazers to even the series and uh, and steal one on the road. Yeah, it was, and it really showed again this um, volatile nature
3: of the Blazers. One game, you know, they were overmatched, um, at odds with the refs and, and out of touch. The next game, they're down there playing the passing lanes, hitting shots, forcing tough shots on the Lakers, and, and then coming back resounding win that shows again hey this is why we're here um and we're legit contenders and this was kind of off the nature of the Blazers in their Blazers era of you know the
2: early 2000s but a really good statement win for them to kind of get home court back a little bit yeah so so let's uh let's move on to to game three and this this game to me was uh, along with game seven one of the most uh crucial games in this series The Blazers get off to a great start, something that we see consistently throughout the series. The Blazers starters in that first quarter outplaying the Lakers starters. Portland gets off to a 13-point lead. Obviously, the player of this game has to be Kobe Bryant. He was huge in terms of stemming the tide in that first quarter. He had four straight jumpers. Three of which were were over the likes of of Damon Stoudemire. Also stole an outlet pass and uh, drew uh, the second foul on Rasheed Wallace. And you know, with despite being down 13, Kobe had helped the Lakers cut it to eight with just two minutes left in the first, and, and ended with 14 in that uh, in that first period. And I think the most important part of that Garrett is
1: that he is within the offense. You see, Kobe, particularly young Kobe.
2: I don't know how old is he in this, 22, 23 years old? Okay, yeah, in his fourth season, uh, yep. Right. Yeah. So he's 22
1: years old, and and the thing about 22 year olds is we've all known, and we've all been there. Is they're a little bit headstrong, and you see that through Kobe through this series. Game seven, there's a really great moment where Kobe drives. He's on the right hand wing, you know, just below the break, and he takes a dribble and he goes into the lane, and there are four Blazers around him, including Sheen and Sabonis, and he still puts a shot up. And luckily, he gets a little bit of a bailout foul. So you see through the series that Kobe's not. Quite comfortable with who he is. He wants to assert his dominance in the game. He wants to yeah. really insert himself into the proceedings. But this game in particular, Kobe stands out because the way he succeeds is within the flow of the offense. He finds good passes. He uses his own gravity to create for teammates. He takes what the offense is given him. There's this really great story about Kobe Bryant that Matt Barnes told on his podcast with he and Steven Jackson. But Matt Barnes talks about one day how, how he's riding on a plane uh, and they're coming back from an away game and, and everybody's asleep. And he looks over, uh, you know, through the aisle and he sees Kobe with the light on and he's writing he's and he's just writing and he's writing. And so Matt Barnes is going to go over there and kind of bother him, just joke with him. And he sees that Kobe's drawing these plays and he's just drawing and he's drawing and he's drawing. And he says, What are you doing, Kobe? He says, the triangle works the same way people defend it he said I'm trying to find out where the lanes are he said you know I go into these games and nobody thinks that is a passer and rightfully so but you do see in this game where Kobe tremendously tremendously dissects this Portland defense because he's finding out where the doubles are coming from and they do double him pretty heavily in this game and so not only is he a scorer but he's a guy who is creating seams in the offense and allowing other guys to take advantage of it and I think by far this is even though Kobe this is not this is high scoring game I don't think but I think I think that this is the game where you go oh man this is a player who if he can figure out his role and he never even though Kobe is an all-time great top 15 player whatever wherever you want to put him it always felt like he didn't he never quite understood this relationship with Shaquille O'Neal. but in this game just for this moment in time you see what can happen when these two guys are on the same page, and I think that's the part of Kobe in Game Three, when you just see him playing in the offense, and no bigger moment than in the actual game winner. Uh, although game winner with like 40 seconds left is, is a little bit of a misnomer, but in Ron Harper's game winner down on that, you know, on the play side, uh, Kobe kind of takes that right hand dribble, and he sees the double coming, and Stoudemire's the double man, and you see Kobe identify. Him. Okay, he as he as he picks up his dribble, he sees that Damon Stoudemire has left his man, and he knows where the hole is. And to me, that's the most beautiful part of what happens there is, yes, Kobe makes a great pass. He trusts his teammates, all the, uh, the the psychological part that goes to it. But the basketball part of it is you see a guy who dissects a play in motion, and he finds the perfect pass because as soon as he sees Stoudemire, as soon as he picks up his dribble, he knows, okay, it runs open over here down the baseline and sure
3: enough Harper steps into it and wins it. But I think that's the big, big takeaway for Kobe Bryant game three. I was gonna say Harper was the biggest five for nine game. What I loved about that is that, you know, he makes the shot, pretty open shot on the baseline, and then he's kinda holding the pose, kinda now with that I guess championship's like it was the funniest thing. I'm sitting going, okay, like, it's a big shot, definitely. And it's funny that he wasn't actually at the three point line. He was like a little bit inside of it. But he took a step in to kinda get into his rhythm. But like, he yeah, does that a lot through the series. Yeah, exactly. Like, that position,
1: that Clay Thompson position dribble, Right, but but instead of just sitting still, he gains ground on it. He does that, like, probably six or seven times in the series. Yes, yeah. and
3: I thought it was funny, like, playing with an stretch, like, he's not, you know, not really a great three-point shooter. Um, in his younger years and, like, the early to mid-90s, he jacked up a lot of threes and it really hit a whole bunch. He was, like, a low thirties um, three-point shooter for most of his career. But, you know, he would kind of get to his spots, and, you know, you had the spacing was not optimal, so a lot of them were accurate front line to just inside, and with Harper he was just inside to just inside even more so that was something I remember seeing, like find the open spot, like you said the reposition dribble, but really one that got him some ground and made it from like, you know, a twenty foot to maybe like a 17, 17 yeah, exactly like, yeah.
2: yeah, the uh Kobe had an absolutely terrific game especially in the offensive end but one of the things I found fascinating you know the, the Lakers had had Kobe on on Damon Stoudemire for the first two games and and Kobe did a great job and Stoudemire really was was largely absent in that uh, in that game 2 victory for Portland uh, but you know in game 3 because Scottie Pippen had played so well he Pippen had averaged uh, over 20 points a game in those first two Phil decides, okay, let's try to slow Pippen down, but then Stoudemire goes off, and, and he scores nine points in the first quarter against the likes of Ron Harper, so there was a lot of interesting sort of give or take, you know, you put, uh, you know, you put Kobe on one guy to to fill one hole, and then, you know, another leak opens up, but, but, you know, you also saw in this game Mike Dunleavy go with the likes of, of uh, Stacy Ogman at times, and, and they attacked Kobe on the block, and, and a lot of times, with pretty good success. Yeah, that becomes a trend through the, through the next couple of this,
1: this like game three, four, five, six stretch, attacking Kobe, attacking Kobe relentlessly to just make him uncomfortable. Kobe has uh, quite a few games where he has three or more fouls, and I think this is like the. the the beginning of that, Stacy Ogman kind of reveals a crack and we don't see a lot more of Stacy Ogman through this series, but he kind of reveals a crack right here. He's like, okay, we can get in there, we can post him up, and, and the guy who really takes advantage of this is Scottie Pippen, because yes. you see Scotty start to go to this baby hook, he looks like an old man playing at the YMCA, because he just goes to this baby hook, and this little soft, take a dribble, take a dribble, back to the basket, open, use, it, use his shoulders to clear space, and just flip and Scotty uses it to a lot of success when he has Kobe on him. And I think it does a lot of good for the Blazers because you see Kobe through this series pick up, you know, there's, I think, four or five fouls a couple of times.
3: And a lot of it came from Stacey Ogwin's contribution right here in game three. I was saying, like, it was little cracks. And this is another thing I love about watching these series and seeing the counter attacks and counterpoints, And almost had a second where you um, mentioned, Gerd, about shifting Kobe to, to Scotty or, or, or trying to do that. I felt very. Reminiscent in a weird way of um, when they put um, Pippin on Magic back in that '91 Finals. Okay, now we're gonna try to neutralize this guy and really just disrupt him with the younger guy, who at this stage of their careers is ready to go at it, will disrupt it just enough to throw off the whole tenor of the Blazers' offense. But in this case, it it's slightly backfired because now it's like, oh, I'm free. Like you know, six foot seven guys hounding me. I'm five eleven. I get a little more room. Now I can operate. So I was commenting on that, but I agree completely. It just showed that okay, not only we're we gonna you're gonna try to use Kobe more as as a defensive disruptor, okay, we're gonna go at him on the other end to say, listen, we'll put him in a spot where he's uncomfortable and then that gives Scotty room to play even more within
2: himself in like you said, uh, Alex, an old man kinda of YMCA game. Yeah, the uh, the the interesting thing about Kobe at this point, you know, he, he made first team all NBA and I know that because Bob Costas mentioned it at least a dozen times throughout the series. but uh but uh you know kobe uh i feel like his strength at this stage again at, at just 22 years old was his athleticism his quickness which you know made him a great matchup on stoudemire but he hadn't quite developed that his body yet he wasn't quite the bulky and strong player that he becomes later in his career so yeah maybe you know his weakness at this time is really his his strength and his post defense, and and Portland just had so many guys that they could they could throw in the post, and and yeah, with the with the big lineups, everybody on the floor could post up. And, and, interestingly, Kobe leads the Lakers in a series of block shots. He's
1: fifteen block shots, and you do see a lot of that. You know, for for guys a little bit younger than us, uh, that kind of Dwayne Wade ask, uh, you know, that side shot blocking where he comes out of nowhere where he's he's the help side defender and he rotates but like you said Garrett that quickness that grace that ability to jump and just inflict his will is something you see now it also counteractively gets him in trouble because he gets in foul trouble a lot with it but you do see I mean there are times where Kobe looks 22 and lost as a defender playing against guys, and then there are times where he looks like he's the best defender on the floor. And I mean, that just speaks to his age, to his youth and where he, how he grows from that. But as a young guy, I mean, that's the thing I take away from Kobe in this series defensively is man, he really can. Do a lot of things that are disruptive. He's never going to be Scotty Pippen. Um, you, you can tell that from here because he just doesn't have that quite that innate sense of where to be and when to be there. But his his athleticism just gives him such an edge as a shot blocker and just being a disruptive force on the defensive end.
2: Yeah, Portland able to have a pretty good first half in Game Three. They're up ten. And they, they run a lot of, of good actions to get Rashid Wallace the ball, though. They ran a cross-screening action quite often to get him the ball on the left block. But, you know, throughout times where the Blazers kind of had some, some scoring droughts, it, it feels like, okay, the offense is a little bit predictable. We're just running the same sort of action over and over again, and the Lakers can kind of hone in on that and slow it down. Uh, and... You know, another thing that I th- I thought was was crucial, and you know we, we can we can get into the the coaching matchup between Phil Jackson and, and Mike Dunleavy, but oh, yeah. the, the the Blazers are outscored by 11 points in the third quarter, and yet Dunleavy does not make a single substitution until there's a minute left in that third period.
1: Yeah, he just goes with the same lineup. He's just gonna it's it's his rider, die lineup because he just gets it. He gets in there. Um, and he decides that's what he's going to stick with. And it, it's like, I think the only two guys who come in just come in like right there before the last the last bell because you get Denton Schrempf and um, Jermaine O'Neill, But the lineup of Stadmeyer, Smith, Pippen, Wallace, and Sabonis goes for almost the entirety of the quarter. Uh, I think the interesting, the, the part of that, you talked about that cross-screening, Garrett. This was something that Dunley had picked up. He had coached the Lakers during that week. That Corbin talked about the '91 finals. He had done a lot of cross-screening stuff with DeVos and with um, with Magic Johnson as well. It was something where uh, that was kind of that old. Dean Smith idea of like, okay, we'll run this secondary break, and as we come down, the ball's going to come down on the left side, we're going to cross screen on the back side and break somebody's at uh, it It is tremendously effective for Sheed. Like you said, it becomes a little bit predictable. They don't really have that second move, that, that counter move to keep that effective here, and it kind of slows down, but... It is something that I thought was interesting. It's really fun to see it develop over the years because I watched just the 91 Finals about three or four weeks ago. Uh, God, the shutdown has been crazy. i watched so much old basketball. But <laughs> yeah. seeing that cross-screen action, something that he, had, years earlier, had used to some great success when he replaced uh, Pat Riley as the Lakers coach, uh, and to see it come back and, and she use it so effectively. But uh, there's something, and i got to bring up something unpopular about Game 3. And this is for you in particular, Corbin. I figured. <laughs> I got I to gotta say something unpopular for all my Lakers fans out there. The crowd at Staples sucks in Game One and Two, and the Rose Garden is rocking. And just that, that watching it back to back because I watched it and then I flipped immediately into Game Three and watched it, and I'm like, man. This is like that Oracle Arena, circa 2008. This is the the NBA Finals kind of uh, arena. Whereas with Le- at Staples, it just felt like, oh, look who, look at all these famous people, look at, at them. Oh, here's Will Smith, here's Denzel Washington, um, and the difference in the crowds to me. Made Game Three much more exciting. Game Six kind of has this air, and then of course in Game Seven, Staples kind of finds itself. But in Games
3: One and Two, boy, it was just quiet. A lot of empty seats on the camera side. Um, you and know, it we have, it's like, it's like Wimbledon. We have educated fans who are just silently watching. <laughs> we're taking notes. We're not just cheering out there, okay? You have Denzel. Nice. Exactly up in Staples Center. You okay. okay. got Denzel. You Go got Will Smith. All, you know, got Jack up there. You know, it's we're reserved. We expect this. Boom is happy to be there. And the crowd reflects that. So you no know, I'm playing off. Um, I'm definitely with surprising. And I love the atmosphere of them. They were really hard to protect years. And they wanted that team to do so well. It's almost a bigger thing I'm about to say right now in terms of how that team just over the years just this was as high as they would get, you know, and the weaker would handle easily in the next couple of years. But in terms of yes, like let's come on, let's reach this potential and yeah. You, you, got, you can see concede that point too. <laughs> it, was, it was not a good one for the Lakers. I not. had to pick
1: on you a little bit. Game 7, they get it back, uh, but it's the games, games 1, 2, and 5, it's a little scary. It's just, it's, 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 I agree. <laughs> the yeah. other thing I wanted to touch on Game 3 before we go to Game 4 is how it was just a great time for gray suits. Whoever had bought into the gray suit market, <laughs> if you watch <laughs> Game 3, literally every coach on both teams is wearing a gray suit. And I don't think I've seen anybody wear a gray suit in like... <laughs> Ten years
2: now, but man, what a great time to have stock in gray suits. Yeah, I, I had just a <laughs> few more notes about uh, about Game Three. Derek Fisher, I thought, played a, a pretty good game for the Lakers. You know, there were times where, yeah, Shaw stepped in and was the backup point guard. But this one, it was it was all Fisher, and and he played really well, especially in the in the second half. And yeah, just going d- going down the stretch, the Kobe versus Pippen battle was so much fun. You know, you see. You see uh, Kobe had a, had a beautiful spin move through a double team and hits about a 10-footer. And then, you know, you, uh, Alex, you mentioned Pippen's ability to just kind of back down Kobe, get to where he wants and, and, and put those right-hand jump hooks. And, and I thought it was surprising just how aggressive Pippen was down the stretch of this game, kind of being the go-to guy in the clutch for the Blazers where, you know, maybe that was a little bit missing as we, as we get later in the series banging that right-hand dribble and spinning to his
1: left. And, and that that step-through move he does where he spins, he goes right-hand dribble and then just comes back to his left hand and shoots that shot. That was one of the most fantastic moves. and I mean, everybody commented on it. We all saw it. But, it, I mean, I, just, I was like, I have to watch this two or three times because it's so picture-perfect, the way he just leans and shakes and comes into a wide-open shot. The other thing, Garrett, you said there that is interesting and, and very true is you kind of see the birth of what Derek Fisher is. Derek Fisher is that proto Fred VanVleet uh, kind of combo guard, and he finds his most success in this triangle offense as the off guard, and you see him play a lot of the off guard in this game, because Kobe does a lot of the ball handling, uh, a lot of the initiation, but with the triangle, like the initiation doesn't really matter, because of the way the players are spaced, you have Shaquille, and you'll take it up a lot, just just occupying a lot of the, air in the so you don't really have that dribble penetration. And Fisher becomes so successful, particularly over the next couple of years, as that second guy. He plays he plays more of a two-guard offensively because he is off the ball. He can knock down shots. He can be a little bit uh, of, a, of a pest,
2: you know, breaking below the brakes. And I think that was something that really is noticeable here in this game theory. Absolutely, and uh, Corbin, I wanted to wanted to get your thoughts on this because you know we, we just did the the 1998 Eastern Conference Finals, and and seeing Phil coach the likes of of, uh, of Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, and it's it seemed like in this Game Three, you realize Phil Jackson is fully aware that this Blazers team is going to be a major challenge. He's got to give it everything he has, and and he plays Shaq every single minute. In this ball game, and and Kobe sits out for maybe 45 seconds, but pretty much he's playing as stars the entire game, and they get a 93-91 victory. Oh yeah, no, you said it. I mean, it was it was a threat.
3: I remember even being a little bit younger, reading um Phil Jackson. You know, he, he kind of did like a diary with Charlie Rosen on that season, and he said, "Listen, like this team, not only you know are they as people as you've described, as literally going like 10, 11 deep in terms of quality of players, but you had." Guys that, yeah, while not a perfect match for Shaq, the bonus was just as big, could kind of absorb that first um, bow that, you know, Shaq likes to hit you before he goes into his move, whether it's to the basket or for that little mini-hook. And the team, and you can see he, wasn't, he was not playing around. Like, yeah, the mind gets maybe on, like, how to, to switch, who's going to stick who, and whatever the case may be, but, you know, he's not taking him lightly. You know, A.C. Green had a couple heavy minutes was starting to kind of fade a little bit. Okay, we'll, we'll give Robert away some more minutes. We'll get some from Fisher. You know, we'll, we'll throw Sally in the fourth stretch. He was... He, I think, was well aware. And honestly, I, I, would, I don't even think it's that hard, aside from 2002. With the Kings, this is probably the Lakers'
2: um, toughest matchup throughout their first three P years. Yeah, and, and Alex, uh, what's your take on the idea that, you know, obviously when, when you play guys 48 minutes, you know, you, you mentioned how, how slow of a pace this series was. And, you know, just the, the Blazers' offensive style where it's a lot of isolations on the block. Where the Lakers defenders can do a lot of just standing around. Do you imagine that kind of helped the ability of, of guys like Shaq and Kobe to play heavy minutes while not looking super fatigued out there?
1: Most definitely. I mean, she, you can, I, and I, that was something that I noticed you know, you see Shaq goes all 48. Okay, we're talking about a 2020 game. There's no way a Shaquille O'Neal can go all 48 because he is tasked with defending the perimeter. He is tasked with chasing and tagging and helping and being all over the place. And, and I do think that the slow down, methodical pace and this becomes a big theme in five and six because the the Blazers find really great success in early possession. So they'll they'll win a defensive rebound. They'll push ahead. They'll score they'll win a defensive rebound or or create a steal or, or, you know, even attack quickly off an inbounds, off a made basket, but particularly on on where they play good defense. You see them get into their offense quickly. And I think that's something they probably took away from this Game 3, is if we can let Shaquille O'Neal kind of find himself on defensive end, let let him relax, let him not have to apply himself so much, then on the other end, he's going to be able to demolish us offensively and so they do just start pushing the pace a little bit, but yeah, this game, this game dragged, um, and, and and towards the end it was like, man, you, I didn't realize it because I didn't look at the box scores until after the games because I wanted to take my first impression, and and I was like, man, I don't think Shaq set that whole game, and sure enough, yeah, it goes all 48, but there's just no way in a 2020 context you see a guy like Shaq, even in his prime as he is
2: right here, there's just no way he's going all 48 today absolutely so so let's move on to, to game four and obviously Lakers with a 2-1 edge on the road you know this is a usually a, a pretty critical game in a best of seven series obviously Portland wanting to, to even it up at two and make it a best of three whereas the Lakers wanting to to really grab hold and, and take a three-1 series lead but again uh, you know we mentioned this was a theme throughout the series the blazers getting off to a really good start they get up 10 to two. Uh, and, uh, you know, you see Sabonis knocking down some some jump shots, including a rare three-pointer for him in the series. And, and uh, Steve Smith hits a three, and, and Pippen with a post-up. You know, you, you just see this balance from Portland, and, and they continue to uh, to put the Lakers in a hole early.
3: Yeah, it, this was another one where another strong start for the Blazers. Outside to have fun, okay, now we can adjust, play inside, work that way. Um, and the Lakers, it's, it was weird. It was um, every game kind of like a sluggish start to a lackluster. Sometimes it just didn't feel like the extra gear that Portland was working with, especially in the game in this case where yeah, that Portland kind of needed it was there. Where the Lakers had you know kind of going by Shaq and Shaq, you know he played himself into it. Um, and I mean even for this one, he, he racked up his points, he had a dominant game. Um, for I mean it was subpar so for for Shaq in my opinion, but just in general, you know Portland coming out the gate. And they're fired up, and they're ready to get going. And, and just like they have, it's balanced scoring all around um, in that first quarter. You have to know Smith leads the way with seven. Then Sabonis had five, like you said, hit the three. Wiles the four, Pippen with three. And then Sotomayor with two points in and, and a rebound and two assists. So, you know, he's spreading it out, and everyone's getting it off the bench. Grant went up two for two. And that was the bounce scoring in the first quarter to kind of get that quick edge um, to begin with. And then again, just like game two. I'm kind of skipping um, quarter two of this right now. The Lakers used a really big third quarter to kind of pull ahead and take control.
1: Weird note about this game this game had the most uh, illegal defense calls of the entire series. Um, (laughs) I don't know what the point of emphasis was with this, like with Bennett. This is the first game Bennett Salvatore refs, and you see him just kind of really go in on this, Hugh Hollins as well. Uh, But there's a lot of illegal defense called on both sides. Like, it's not it's not biased in either direction. I thought that was just a weird note because it does change. In the first couple of games of the series, They were, both teams were getting away with a lot of illegal defense, particularly helping on Shaquille O'Neal and then just kind of bracketing as the, the Lakers were doing a lot of, like, late doubles or late helps and those kinds of things. You do see those get called here. They don't really ever get called again. But I think this makes this game kind of stand out as weird because – the players had had what I consider to be, you know, it was pretty tight in one and two. It was a little bit looser whistle, but it, at least it was consistent on how things were called. This, to me, stood out as kind of an outlier. It's like, okay, there's been a point of emphasis about these illegal defenses, making sure that they're not helping too soon and, and not leaving their man and all this kind of stuff. I just thought that was weird, and I thought it played a little bit of a disruptive effect on how this game went
2: from a defense perspective for both teams. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Shaquille O'Neal, you know, similar to Game 3 where kind of Kobe kept the Lakers in it throughout. Shaq kept him in it early. He had eight of the team's first 16 points in the first. And, uh, you know, speaking to Damon Stoudemire after having really his first good performance in Game 3, I thought this was another one where he kind of just didn't show up. I noticed throughout the series that he consistently missed wide open layups. He had opportunities where, you know, he's very quick. He's the best penetrator on this Blazers team, but he would get to the rim and just kind of blow the the shots at the bucket. And another thing that I thought, you know, Dunleavy didn't do a great job of in terms of, of helping Stoudemire get going is, you know, they would run some pick and rolls for Stoudemire, but most of the time I noticed that, the screen was set for Stottemeyer to go to his offhand, his weak hand, going right.
1: Yeah, that was, I noticed that same thing. They did that a lot where he was like, he, it was like they didn't quite know where to do this. And you don't see him run a ton of pick and roll. The most successful is Steve Smith and Arvita Sabonis in game five. But this was, this was a little bit of like... It felt like, to me, Garrett, building off of what you said there, it felt like this was a little bit of a token, okay, let's get Damon involved, but there wasn't like a full-on dedication to get him in the game. The Blazers hadn't quite decided which way they wanted to shift in game four. I think they make that shift in game five and decide they're going to go away from Stoudemire, but it felt like a little bit of token, okay, let's throw him a bone, see if we can get him started, get him contributing, and those weird
2: Left hand, left hand side of the court. Him going to his right hand screens were a big part of that. It was yeah, you know, it was less of like a tactical adjustment and more of like a 2012, 2013 OKC uh, Kendrick Perkins honorary post up to start the game <laughs> yeah. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you, you know obviously Stoudemire was a big part of the team throughout the season and but yeah, it's it's one of those things where you know if if a guy, especially if a guy has been struggling. Uh, throughout the series, yeah, you wanna you wanna do things to get him easier looks as opposed to you know again going to his off hand. He's struggling to finish with his strong hand and sending him to his weak hand, not uh, not likely to lead to much success. <laughs> when we went to that one point Zach loved that. I mean, it wasn't it was like the boys had been struggling with
3: Stoudemire even the season before. He hadn't had a great playoff series. He had shot 39% from the floor. Um, watching some of those games, he had pouted over his minutes then. So it felt like Donald was like, okay, like you said, we'll throw you a bone but with like a complete misunderstanding of what bone needs to be thrown to kind of get Stoudemire going.
2: Yep. Yeah, or, or if that bone even needed to be thrown. I mean, I you know, you understand, you understand the point of, like,
1: you want to keep everybody happy, but at the same time, we see in games five and six, they figure out a different way to attack this Lakers defense. And, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. This is the, this is part of the whole jailblazers thing. Stoudemire obviously had his issues, and, 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 Dunleavy has to do Dunley who they talk about at some point during the series, having his degree in psychology has to really put that to use, just handling the, the the mentality of this roster. Even when you have guys like Steve Smith, Arvidas Sabonis, Scottie Pippen, these kind of veteran mentality, you have these younger guys who they kind of have to work around with
2: Rashid Wallace and, and then Damon Stoudemire a little bit. Yeah, and, and Dunleavy, you know, you mentioned he kind of he finally figures it out in games five and six when, when Portland kind of reverses the trend of this series. But, you know, he probably should have known about this after game two. You know, they won by basically 30 points and Stoudemire played 11 minutes. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea that it took Dunleavy till game five to realize that, you know, maybe our better lineups are the ones where, you know, we just go big. We don't have a weak link on defense. And, uh, you know, we can, we can focus on the post-up. And and the likes of, of Pippen and Smith were, were capable ball handlers. And as I said earlier, the Lakers, other than maybe Kobe Bryant, didn't have too many people that were willing to to, uh, to provide full-court pressure. Yeah, you just see in the next two games, Stalman plays 14 minutes in Game 3, plays 30 minutes. I mean, in Game 5 and 30 in Game 6. And,
1: like, they find... A lineup that works, particularly with Detlef Schrempf, who is, you know, on on his last leg, d- does retire after the season before coming back shortly in you know, the 2001 season. He comes back a little bit for the playoffs, but they find a good look with Schrempf, and then they find a really good look with Bonzi Wells. They find how to get Bonzi Wells integrated into. The the offense and how to use him in that what we talked about with Stacey Ogman and, and um, Scotty Pippen, finding attacking attack Kobe Bryant where he was, they, they put Barnsie Wells in. Barnsie, who is secretly uh, a big man, but is also like six six and plays guard kind of, um, but they, they use him particularly well over the next couple of games and finding that niche and like, well, okay. We're a different kind of team. We're still we still want to play quick. We still want to hit ahead. We still want to integrate our I mean initiate our offense early. But it's in a different phase than Stoudemire doing that dribble penetration. They find ways to kick it ahead with passes or early post ups or quick looks for three or even inside outside game. And I think that they do a good job. It just like you said, Gary. It's like well now it's game five and we're down three one. And, yeah, they get it to Game 7 and are up 15 with, you know, nine minutes to go in Game 7, so they got pretty darn close. But uh, it just feels like there are some little tweaks earlier in the series uh, that, that could have been made, and Stoudmeier is the big one to me from a personnel point of view. It's like he's just not contributing at the level in which we need him to and, and, and having guys like Bonzi Wells and I mean even Stacey Ogman and what he does Uh, But particularly Bonzi Wells and Detlef Schrempf, who come in and do contribute throughout the games
2: five and six in a in a really big way. Yeah, and you know it'd be one thing if again we were talking about a shallow team that didn't have a good replacement for Stoudemire, but we're talking about one of the deepest teams in NBA history that just had so many options that Dunleavy could have gone with. But uh, you know the the third quarter of this game four was was crucial. The Lakers. Uh, as, as the third quarter was crucial throughout a lot of this series, um, you know, Glenn Rice scores 12 points in the period, the Blazers turning it over a bunch, which led to a bunch of, uh, of Lakers transition opportunities. And another note I had in the second half of this game four is, you know, Portland. Uh, was, was kind of overcompensating trying to avoid the Lakers being able to throw the ball into Shaq, and they would even have the guy guarding the ball handler, the guy trying to make the entry pass, he would back off and get into the passing lane. But then, you know, the likes of uh, of Harper and uh, Robert Ory, those guys realized that and just drove to the hoop and, and were able to, to create some easy chances for themselves. Well, you know
3: potential playing space for the Lakers, power uh, uh, forward the sports in general. That wasn't there before it was really just spacing out and providing down. It's like, oh, okay, they adjust to Shaq. Now we have more room to kind of operate. The adjustments that were made by Portland opened up more opportunity from the Lakers. uh Biggs, in
2: this case, aside from Shaq, who were still able to make plays in space. Yeah, so the the Lakers end up taking Game 4, 103-91. And before we move to Game 5, I thought it was interesting, right at the end of Game 4, Scottie Pippen straight up elbows Glenn Rice right in the noggin, and uh, Pippen apparently was fined but not suspended, but you know, you look at that, and you got to imagine in 2020 that guy is uh, is at least suspended for Game 5.
1: Yeah, there were... This is where it starts to get testy so these guys have lined up against each other four times and down the stretch it it does get a little testy not as bad as we see they let some things go in the mid-2000s that maybe they shouldn't have Uh, but this series kind of gets psychological and it really starts with um, Rick Fox is the guy who kind of gets this whole thing started and he's just chirping away you see him come in the game in game four and just start going at Scotty and you see Scotty kind of going at Phil and there's just a lot of it between the timeouts. And this is this is that good moment, Garrett. You said that game fours are so pivotal because this is where things start to boil over. And, you know, at the beginning of the series, everybody comes in with a game plan. That's great. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to take advantage of this. But when you've played four games, now you know what works. Now you're battle tested. Hey, this is working. This is not. And to me, this is four, five, six, and seven are the most fun games of the series because one, two, and three, it's like well, we're kind of feeling each other out. We're kind of learning. And, and now, with with Scotty unleashing that elbow on Glenn Rice, who by the way goes one for eight in
2: the next game. Uh, maybe some lasting concussion thoughts there. Uh, he rocks them pretty
1: good. He rocks them pretty
2: good. Yeah. Uh, but. but
1: that's the that's the thing, is like you get to this deep in the series, now they know each other, now there's animosity, and this is when it really takes off for me. It's like if you're gonna just do a rewatch and you don't wanna watch all seven, just pick up on game five, six, and seven and you kinda get the gist of everything that's going on here.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a that's a fair point. That in in in, uh, in the year two thousand, they may they may not have uh, have actually even checked if uh, if Glenn Rice was uh, was okay. They're probably like, oh, you got hit in the head. You're fine. Just uh, just move <laughs> on. Uh, <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review. Preferably five stars And uh, if you could give any thoughts About what you like about the show That would be much appreciated We are also on Spotify So uh, you can give us a rating On there as well If you'd like to find some other content Outside of this podcast You can find me on Twitter At Garrett Bougay. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T B-U-G-A-Y I will be Uh tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some, some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine including soccer and film and television so uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the, the course of the week you can find me there. You can find my co-host Corbin Ford on Twitter at Corbin NBA. that's C-O-R-B-A-N NBA so uh, he, uh, he does, a, d- does a good job on Twitter as well he's very active Uh, Corbin also is the site expert for the fan-sided website Valley of the Sun, which talks all things Phoenix Suns, so you can check out uh, what he's doing there. I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers, so if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today, he uh, he does some some fun work over there, so so please, I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for for listening, and have a great rest of your day.
0: Leftovers, or the DMV, Number 97. or house cleaning. Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. Chumba. Chumbacasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We we're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox.